was beautiful as we expected it to be. The whole family actually does that. They all sing. I don't know why, Kezi, I don't know why they're not all up here, but man, it's so great to see families, you know, ministering together, doing things together in the ministry, uh, to see them together. In fact, one of my great joys, honestly, is having my wife and kids and even my, my mom and dad all in ministry together with me. There's really nothing quite like family, and particularly when family's like-minded, you know, when there's unity and mutual cooperation within that, that family. I mean, unity within the home benefits everyone in the family, and conversely, there aren't many things worse in this life than strife within a family. And I'm sure many of you know that. When there's disunity in the home, generally the entire family suffers. Why? Why is that? Well, it's because the bonds that we share as members of the same bloodline are so strong and run so deep that every member is connected. That's why our lineage is called a family tree, right? Because every leaf and every branch is connected to the others. And the health of the entire tree is, of course, affected by the health of every individual part of the tree. If insects eat the leaves of a tree long enough, the entire tree will eventually die, right? Because when one part suffers, the entire tree suffers. However, when each part of the tree is nurtured and properly cared for, the entire tree enjoys health and growth and longevity. And family is very much like that. Uh, I'm sure you've heard the saying, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? I think that's a true statement, and I think it's really true of all the family members. I have three kids, my 18-year-old son, Coleman, my 15-year-old son, Riley, and my six-year-old daughter, Avery. And my daughter, Avery, generally wants to have everything her way all the time, <laughs> except that she doesn't always get to have everything her way all the time. And I'll tell you that when Avery is unhappy, first of all, everyone in the family knows about it. Because she isn't shy, first of all, about letting you know that she's unhappy. And then usually upon being disciplined for what is sometimes unacceptable behavior related to her unhappiness, she's occasionally banished to her room. And so the rest of the family can try and exist in some kind of peace until, until she expresses some contrition and settles down a bit. And Avery has a speci uh, an especially unique uh, relationship with her brother Riley. Riley is her closest sibling and her greatest source of frustration in this world. <laughs> and so, just to illustrate how each member of the family can affect the others, I think we have a picture. You see this picture? <laughs> Avery drew this picture and she taped it to her door. And so I photographed it for you. And when I saw it, I walked up to it and I, I said, Avery, honey, does this mean that no boys are allowed in your room? To which she replied, no, daddy. That means that Riley isn't allowed in my room. <laughs> she was mad at her brother, as usual, for something he'd done or not done. And, and he was banned for life from entering her room. And you got to hand it to her. It actually kind of looks like him. <laughs> she, she did a really good job. So, yeah. What a kid. There's nothing quite like family. And the same can be said of our spiritual family. Even You have to take that down or no one's going to listen to my sermon now. 
The same can be said of our spiritual family, even more so, actually, I think, than our natural family. And if you've been born again, you've been born into the family of God. You're a part of a new bloodline because your eternity has been purchased by the blood of Christ. As you know, and as Christians, believers and followers of Christ, we now coexist as members of the same lineage. And those bonds as brothers and sisters in Christ, they run strong and they run deep. So much so that what happens to one member affects the entire family. The Apostle Paul said it really well in 1 Corinthians 12, 24 through 26, when he writes, God has so composed the body Of course, he's referring to the church, the body of Christ. Given greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Can't be much clearer than that. We as followers of Christ are all a part of the same family. And what affects one affects all. And that's the topic of our message today. All right, as we continue our sermon series, The Acts of the Apostles, we're working our way through the book of Acts with this morning's teaching is entitled Family Matters. So let's turn to chapter 11 in the book of Acts. If you brought your Bible, we'll have it up on the screen. And we're going to pick up the story where we left off last Sunday, right on verse 1. So chapter 11, verse 1, let's read together. Now the apostles and brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Okay? So coming off of the heels of his amazing experience that he had with this prominent Roman soldier, Cornelius, that we talked about last week, an uncircumcised Gentile, and he leading him and all of his family and all of his attendants and all of his household to Christ, as the Spirit of God led him to do so, and then baptizing them, Peter has now returned home. He's returned to the mothership. He's back in Jerusalem where the church was started and where most of the apostles and elders were. And some of his spiritual brothers, the circumcision party, who were strict Jewish Christians, probably from a Pharisaical background, begin to crack down on Peter because he's done the unthinkable in their minds. Peter has taken their most prized possession the gospel of Jesus Christ. And through personal fellowship with them, he's offered it to them, these Gentiles, this substandard race of people, as far as the Jews were concerned, that they despised. The Gentiles were almost like animals to the Hebrew people. And previously, the Jews were to have nothing to do with the Gentiles. But God changed all that when he gave Peter a vision of the gospel going out to include the Gentiles. But Peter's spiritual brothers and sisters in Jerusalem didn't know anything about his vision yet, right? I mean, if he'd had Facebook, maybe, right? He could have posted a selfie with a cool caption all about his vision and the party at Cornelius' house and how God had changed the hearts of the Jews to reach out to all people, not just the Hebrew people. Maybe he could have told them what barbecue tastes like. But of course, that was a joke. He was a Jew. He didn't. And the family in Jerusalem didn't understand yet what God was up to concerning the Gentiles. And so what we find here, even among the family of God, these brothers and sisters in Christ as members of the universal church, and not only that, but the local church in Jerusalem, where it all started, where the power of the Holy Spirit was on full display, 
where thousands were being added to their numbers and miraculous things were happening on a consistent basis. This was a dynamic, thriving, healthy, full of the spirit mega church. And yet even there at this great church in Jerusalem, we find that at times there will be misunderstandings in the family. And the truth is, misunderstandings are unavoidable in any family, no matter how strong or how close or how healthy. And if you've been a part of a family for any length of time, you probably already realize that. Misunderstandings within a family are unavoidable and they're going to happen because we're human and we don't know everything. I know, I know a few people who are convinced that they do know everything but I'm certain they're mistaken because that accolade can only truthfully be ascribed to God alone. Psalm 147, four and five, referring to God says he determines the number of stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. First Samuel 2, 3, Hannah prays, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth for the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. Job 37, 16, do you know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? And of course, we know Isaiah 55, 9, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Only God knows it all. We don't. And because we don't, we won't always understand what's happening within the family. And so even as good as this family is, even as good as our upcountry family is, and man, it has been good, there are going to be misunderstandings. We're a young church, and as we grow, there will be misunderstandings. And the key to measuring our success in mitigating or, or dealing with misunderstandings does not lie in whether or not they happen, because again, they will happen. The measure of our success is how we deal with those misunderstandings uh, after or during um, when it's taking place. In other words, how do we respond to the misunderstandings? Do we assume that we're right even before we hear the other side of the story? Or do we approach the other party in love and with grace and take time to discuss the issue? Do we allow that person to share their side of the story, their perspective, their motivation? You know, I've learned through the years of counseling that the majority of misunderstandings in families, at least that I've experienced, could be resolved if both parties would simply be willing to hear each other out with an open mind, that's key, and be willing to consider right from the beginning that there may be more to the story than they realize. And, and therefore, we don't pass judgment until we've heard both sides of the story. In fact, very often, people within a family are trying to accomplish the same goals, but they don't realize it because they're approaching the pursuit of those goals differently. And what often happens is, once we have a misunderstanding, we sometimes begin to tell ourselves stories. We fill in the blanks with our own presuppositions, our own assumptions before even hearing from that other person or those other people first. And that often leads to making conclusions that are skewed. They're peppered with our own fears and assumptions. And once we allow those stories that we've created to take hold, it can be a lot of work to then go back and try to overcome those false beliefs that are based on partial information and misunderstandings, okay? And frankly, some people aren't willing to put in that work. They'd rather ruminate in their own self-pity, which really is just a form of selfishness and narcissism that ultimately leads to a victim 
mentality, which honestly uh, seems to be rather prevalent in our culture today. It's very frustrating to witness and very hard often to overcome it. Okay, so you can see, I hope, how misunderstandings, if not handled uh, promptly and properly, can spiral rather quickly into dysfunction, even within the strongest of families. All right, so, so how does our Jerusalem church family handle their misunderstanding? Let's, let's read about it and find out. And because uh, Peter's explanation here is really a review of chapter 10, which we just spent two weeks working through, I'm going to read through these next 14 verses fairly quickly, okay? And then I'll comment on them and, uh, and we'll move on. So let's pick it up in verse four. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descended, descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, uh, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. They were Gentiles. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send a Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same, the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? All right, so Peter offers a perspective here that is completely different than anything these strict Jewish Christians would have ever even considered before. The acceptance and willingness of Peter to include the Gentiles in his mission goes against everything that these Jews have been taught for generations. It's a really, really big deal for Peter to explain what had happened in Caesarea. This is kind of like uh, the white girl who comes home and tells her parents that she's found the man that God intended for her to marry, and it's an African-American man, and the parents aren't good with that, right? I mean, we know there have been people, certainly in our history, white people in our country, who honestly believe that African-Americans were somehow substandard human beings, that they, they believed they could defend that scripturally. We've had people try to defend slavery from a biblical standpoint. Certainly, they oppose any kind of interracial marriage, right? Believing that the Bible prohibited it. Now, obviously, they were wrong in thinking that way. But you can imagine when the daughter of these white parents uh, comes home and says, this is the man that God wants me to marry, how appalled her parents would be because it goes against everything that they've believed their entire lives. Now, the point here is this. Just because we've believed something for a long time doesn't make it true. Just because we've been told something doesn't necessarily make it true. This is where the gifts of the Spirit and a solid understanding of how to read and study the Bible become very necessary in the believer's life. The fact is, uh, 
There have been many, many abuses throughout history carried out by people in the name of the scriptures who have grossly misinterpreted them. And so it's really important that we understand what the Bible says about how we are to live. And that not only means uh, being a part of a local church where sound teaching is the norm, but it also means being very careful who you listen to outside of your church. There are people who have the gift of teaching and there are people who don't. But there are also people who are very gifted teachers who selectively choose scriptural passages to support their own ideas, their own presuppositions to the exclusion of the whole counsel of God. They teach their own version of the gospel to their own ends. And unfortunately, uh, I believe that's not all that uncommon these days. So we all need to be very careful about who we're listening to. Just because someone writes about something biblical on the internet or calls himself an apostle or a prophet doesn't mean it's true, right? No one is perfect. But there's a big difference between those gifted teachers who have been called by God with a long proven record of good spiritual fruit coming from their ministries and those self-proclaimed voices of God with some kind of new message and a, a personal agenda. We shouldn't give any heed to any message that doesn't ultimately point to Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Okay, so don't trust everything that you read outside of Scripture. Rather, through sound teaching, from proven sources, and the, the myriad of wonderful resources for understanding biblical Scripture that are available to just about everyone today, we should always practice sound biblical study, which can help us avoid a lot of misunderstandings, certainly within our family of faith, and also guide us through the process of reconciliation when misunderstandings do occur. All right, and then in reference to the gifts of the Spirit, this is where wisdom and discernment must be applied. It's important that we're always sensitive to and open to the voice of God who lives inside of us. That's how we grow in maturity and wisdom, when we're teachable, when we're willing to listen, willing to change. Now look, that doesn't mean listening to every voice that whispers in your ear or catches your eye. It means discerning the difference between the Holy Spirit's voice and all others. In 1 Corinthians 12.10, the Apostle Paul talks about the gift given by the Spirit of God that is the ability to distinguish between spirits. And that word distinguish in the original Greek is the word diakrisis, which means discerning. So it's important that we're all able to discern or distinguish the difference between the voice of God and every other voice in our lives. And sometimes that understanding comes to us directly and sometimes it comes through wise counsel by trusted sources. It can certainly come through diligent study and meditation on the Word of God. And at times He even reveals His will to us through circumstances. But the point of all of this is that when misunderstandings arise within the family of God, and they will, that our response is always to consult the Word of God and the voice of the Spirit of God through prayer first so that we can navigate our way back to unity and harmony within the family. We're human. We aren't always right about everything. So keeping our hearts and minds open to correction and continued learning will help immensely when it comes to being a member of this great family of God, the church. Okay, And that's exactly what we see happening here in the church at Jerusalem. 
Peter has just unloaded on some of his spiritual brothers here a completely new paradigm, a new command, something so far beyond what is simply uh, culturally taboo. This is earth-shattering kind of information for the Jews. And so how do they respond? Because there's already a misunderstanding. These strict Jewish Christians are questioning Peter about something they've been told their entire lives is wrong, namely eating and hanging out with Gentiles. And Peter offers a completely new perspective. And so how do they take the news? How do they react? Let's read it. It's verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. It's hard to argue with results. Namely, the good spiritual fruit that Peter is testifying to. And they trusted Peter. He was a leader in the church. He was a proven source. And they discerned that what they were hearing was truly the voice of God. And so they rejoiced with him. And what was the result? The misunderstanding, at least with this part of the family, that could have split the church in half was instead rectified because these church members were willing to listen to Peter's testimony, his explanation, and then consider the outcome. Okay, So there will be misunderstandings within any family. The key to resolving them is by consulting, following the Word of God, of course, by following the voice of the Spirit through prayer, and always being teachable, being willing to learn. And the leadership of the church, if it is truly called and appointed by God to be in that position, will often be a part of that process to help guide us through that way as the Spirit leads. And that's the process that we see modeled here in our story with Peter and the Gentiles in the church in Jerusalem. Okay, So the misunderstanding is cleared up and the story shifts now to the newly forming church in Antioch and the continuing ministry to the Gentiles based from there. So let's keep reading from verse 19. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. That's important. We'll talk about that part. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Okay, so out of the church in Jerusalem, as the believers spread out, we see the birth of this new local congregation, this church in Antioch. And early on, the church's ministry was directed now to the Gentiles. In fact, uh, the Antioch church became the metropolitan center for the expansion of the gospel to the Gentile world. So just as Jerusalem was sort of home base for spreading the gospel to the Jews, the Antioch church became home base for spreading the gospel to the Gentiles. And some background about this city, interestingly enough, Antioch was a, a very prosperous, a very secular, worldly place. It was not only a, a commercial center because of its proximity to several of the important caravan routes uh, where commerce was happening, but it was also considered a religious center for pagan religions, particularly those that practiced temple prostitution. So Antioch was a very sophisticated and a very morally debased city. It was kind of like combining uh, New York City and Las Vegas into one town. Sorry, Daniel. New York's a great town. And so when we read the description of the Hellenists, in verse 20, that's definitely referring to Gentiles in this case. And I want to explain that. The word Hellenist 
is used fairly loosely in the New Testament. At times it refers to Greek-speaking Jews, as in Acts 9.29. At other times it refers to Greek-speaking Jewish Christians, as in Acts 6.1. And then here in verse 20, the term Hellenist is referring to Greek-speaking Gentiles who lived in Antioch. Okay, and you'll notice also in verse 20 it says, The men of Cyprus and Cyrene were preaching the Lord Jesus instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's actually a meaningful distinction to be noted there. The emphasis in the church in Antioch, at least in the beginning, was on Jesus as the Lord rather than on Jesus as the Christ because in Gentile culture, there was no expectation for a coming of a Messiah as there was in Jewish culture. So the word Christ, the title Christ for the Gentiles had no meaning, at least in the beginning initially, because they had no Old Testament background. However, the concept of someone manifesting lordship over them and ultimately saving them from a really messed up world and giving them life after death, well, that made perfect sense. And so the ministry by the church in Antioch was geared specifically, appropriately, brilliantly for the church culture that they were in, or excuse me, for the secular culture they were in. In theological terms, that's called contextualization of the gospel. And there are entire books written just on that subject. But the point is, these Christians in Antioch were sensitive to the culture around them without in any way compromising the message of the gospel. That's a lesson for us. Okay? And so here we see a new church birthed out of the original church in Jerusalem that is now ministering the gospel to the Gentile population in a very spiritually dark place. And although it's growing rapidly and it's thriving, it still needs to be nurtured. It still needs support from the mother church. Because even though this young church was increasing and showing signs of healthy success, it was still a part of the universal family of God, the larger body of Christ. And as we'll see here, family members must continue to receive if they are to continue growing. Okay? And I'll try to move a bit quicker through these next couple of points in our outline as we move ahead in the story here. But this is where we witness this continuing development of the Antioch church and the role that the Jerusalem church played in that. So let's read another three verses or so and we'll look at this idea of receiving a bit more. All right, verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord uh, with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. This is interesting, and it's a pattern that we see throughout the book of Acts from the inception of the church right up through uh, chapter 11 here. As soon as the parent church in Jerusalem learns about a new work of the gospel springing up somewhere, they send some of their best men out to validate and reinforce the ministry there. We saw it in Samaria when Peter and John were sent to check on Philip and his ministry there and here again with Barnabas and Antioch. And what does Barnabas do when he gets to Antioch? He exhorts them to remain faithful in the Lord with steadfast purpose. What does that mean? That word exhort in the Greek is the word parakaleo and it literally means to instruct. Okay, Barnabas was instructing. He was teaching the Christians in Antioch how to continue in the ministry so they could continue to grow and remain healthy, but that's not all that he did. After he taught them what he was able to by himself, he goes and gets reinforcements. Let's keep reading, verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians, okay? 
as good as it was in Antioch. And by all indications, it was really, really good. The ministry was thriving and growing. But as good as it was, obviously, Barnabas believed that there was much more for them to learn. Otherwise, he would have had no reason to bother going out and looking for Saul. And clearly, Barnabas didn't know exactly where Saul was. The original Greek says that he actually went out to search for Saul, okay? So it wasn't like Saul was happen happening by Antioch and Barnabas said, hey, come here, man, you got to see this. No, Barnabas went searching for Saul to bring him back to Antioch, to teach them beyond what he was able to do alone, which not only shows determination, but a lot of humility on Barnabas's part as well. And so for a solid year together now, they stay in Antioch and they continue to teach and train them in the ministry of the gospel. And yet there's still more receiving to come for the church in Antioch because in verse 27, uh, Luke says, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, okay? So the leaders of the church in Jerusalem are pouring into the church in Antioch and it seems the more success that Antioch experiences, the more leaders are sent to continue teaching them. And I have to tell you, I honestly find this very compelling because at least... In my lifetime, it seems like the opposite is true in the American church culture. And forgive me if I seem overly critical, because I don't mean to be. But I spent three years in seminary studying the modern American church, and one of the overwhelmingly prevalent aspects of the church in America today is that as soon as a new church springs up somewhere and experiences rapid growth and success in ministry... Rather than the older, more established churches sending leaders in to train and teach and guide the young church leaders through the rapid expansion at the new church, what we see instead is the new church being elevated as the model for everyone else to follow. And the pastors and worship leaders and other ministers in the new church, they become rock stars in the church community worldwide. And they write books and they go on the speaking circuit and they can do or say no wrong. Because you can't argue with results, right? And so everyone begins to look to these young, rapidly exploding churches for leadership and training and guidance when it should be the other way around. It's no wonder we keep seeing so many of these pastors going off the deep end and losing their ministries. They have no one guiding them, no one to answer to. There's no accountability Rather, everyone is looking to them for all of the answers. And I don't care who you are. If you're treated like a demigod long enough, you begin to believe the hype. It's, it's true. I'm convinced that the moment we experience some success and decide that we have it all figured out will be the beginning of our downfall. One of the most important aspects of personal and corporate growth as believers and as the church is humility. The moment we stop learning is the moment we stop growing. And one of the greatest enemies of learning is pride. Okay, when we're learning, we, uh, we're receiving wisdom and knowledge and understanding. But when we're completely full of ourselves, we leave no room to receive anything. And if we aren't growing, we're dying. This is true for us as individuals, by the way, as well as it is for the church as a whole. No matter how experienced or successful we are, there's always more to learn. We must be open to learning and receiving from others, whether that's in church or in the office or at home. All of the really successful people that I've ever known were people who were always learning. 
They always seem to be growing, learning new things. And conversely, the people that I've met over the years who seem to think that they had all the answers, who could never be taught anything, always seem to be the ones struggling through life, whether in their career, in their ministry, or in their relationships. Honestly, if we're not willing to learn, we're just shooting ourselves in the foot and we're setting ourselves up for failure. And so I love the picture here of this young, thriving, successful church full of Gentiles who are receiving from Barnabas and Saul and other seasoned ministers from the church in Jerusalem. This is how we should all be as the church and as individuals. Okay? So ask yourself, am I teachable? Do I take correction well? Or is my immediate response to any form of correction or instruction always uh, some kind of retort, a justification or a, a rebuttal of some kind? Over the years, I've had people come in for counseling that they've requested, by the way. But when they show up, it quickly becomes apparent that they're not at all interested in receiving counsel. Rather, they simply want someone to justify their behavior. Someone who will commiserate with them or validate their rotten attitude about someone else or some particular situation. And if I've learned anything in the ministry having to do with this subject, it is this. Ignorance is infinitely easier to work with than arrogance. You with me? Ignorance is infinitely easier to work with than arrogance. The ignorant can be taught. The arrogant cannot. So let this be a friendly warning for all of us, including your pastor, by the way, most of all. The moment that we stop learning is the moment we stop growing. And if we aren't growing, we're dying. It's important that we realize that and accept that misunderstandings will arise from time to time in our own family and in our church family, certainly. And therefore, we must be willing to receive help, to be teachable, and our greatest asset in that process, I believe, is always a healthy measure of humility. Okay? And then finally today, and I'll move really fast as we finish our text, we see that family members must continue to give if they're to continue growing. It's really important as a church and as individual believers that we strike a healthy balance in life and in the ministry between what we receive and what we give. Because one without the other can completely wreck an otherwise healthy ministry. All right? And just as a child in a family who continually receives from his or her parents as they grow and they're expected to begin to give back increasingly as they mature and grow older, right? The same is true or should be true with the church. So let's finish reading this chapter and then we'll, we'll expound on this final point just a little bit. Verse 28, And one of them named Agabus, this is one of the prophets, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Okay, the phrase, all the world, in verse 28, that was a commonly used phrase in the first century A.D. writings in reference to the entire Roman Empire. So probably this wasn't actually a worldwide famine. However, there were several famines in various parts of the Roman Empire during the reign of Claudius, including quite a few in Judea in the early years of his reign. And historians believe that this particular famine prophesied by Agabus took place uh, somewhere between A.D. 45 to 47 and would have uh, probably taken a particularly hard toll on the church in Jerusalem. So, so there's this major famine on the way. 
And we see here what I think is one of the most beautiful examples of a young church getting it right. The Antioch church was continually open to receiving guidance and training and wisdom from the older, more established church and its leaders. And yet, when the time came and the mother church that had been pouring its resources into the younger church came into serious need, the younger church immediately springs into action and gives back some of what it has been blessed with. It is good and in fact necessary to receive in humility and with grace from others. But if all that we ever do is receive, we never give anything back, given enough time, we begin to believe that that's normal, the way it should be. And we begin to believe that everyone else kind of owes us something all the time. But we never see any reason to give anything back. And that behavior, the unwillingness to give, is just as destructive as the person or the church that is unwilling to be led or to receive from others. Okay, this Christian journey that we're on is a balance of receiving and giving. And I honestly believe that if every member of the church gave as they should according to the direction of Jesus himself and the apostles teaching, there would never be any lack of resources in the church to carry out the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm not, I'm not even talking about money here, okay? I'm just talking in general. And that's what we see happening here in Jerusalem. The moment that outside forces come into play and threaten to completely deplete all the resources of the church in Jerusalem, the greater body of Christ takes action and meets the need. In the Old Testament, the Lord set forth before the people a set of expectations for giving. Expectations for giving their time and their energy and their abilities and their money and their goods and their devotion. It was all intended to be a form of worship back to his people, back to him, from his people, back to him. And it was all based on percentages of their lives and possessions. You gave a percentage of your time, a percentage of your money, a percentage of your life. Everything was regulated to offer God worship. The beginning of Leviticus chapter 16 says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. In other words, you can't just waltz in here anytime you feel like it and make offerings to me or you're going to die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, but in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. Okay, this whole chapter, we won't keep reading it, but really the entire book of Leviticus goes on and on and on about how and when and how much to give to God. These were very specific rules about exactly how to worship him. And then along comes Jesus, and everything changes. And I've taught this before, so I'm not going to go back through all of it now, but I'll just reference some of the highlights from that teaching, because very clearly, the requirements for giving in the New Testament under the New Covenant didn't become easier that's such a great misconception among the church today. In fact, the requirements became far greater under the new covenant. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot 
will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. And that word iota, dot, is the Greek word that refers to the little piece on the end of the letter that stuck out the most insignificant part of the Greek alphabet. Okay? He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, the rule keepers, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say whoever omits or deletes one of these commandments. He says whoever even relaxes one of the least of them will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. These are very strong, very clear words. And as we read on, we see exactly what he meant. Jesus in no way came to take away all the requirements that God set before his people. There are ceremonial things that were taken away. We'll talk about that. But, so, but he didn't come to take away all of the law and requirements so we could, we could kick back, take a breather, and live under some kind of false prosperity gospel where our only requirement is to give enough in the offering plate so we can get rich and show the world how much God wants to bless his children. That is a false doctrine of man. According to Jesus, the requirements for God's people under the new covenant got kicked up a notch. The ceremonial laws, all right, given to the Jews specifically in the old covenant, they don't apply to us now, okay? But the universal law still very much applies to us. That didn't go away at all. Verse 21, Jesus says, you've heard it, that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Well, that didn't get easier, right? From the old rule, that's much easier, much more simple to say don't murder other people than it is to say you're now not even supposed to be angry with your brother, right? Skip down to verse 27. You've heard it that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, that didn't exactly get easier. The requirement for staying free from adultery just became a lot more strictly interpreted. Verse 31. It was also said whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That didn't get easier. Verse 33, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, in other words, under the old covenant, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And then I'll finish up verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. <clears throat> Excuse me. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Uh, clearly, the new covenant hasn't released us from strict requirements for living. In fact, verse 43 says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those 
who persecute you. Okay, in the old covenant, God's people were required to go so far for God. Under the new covenant, we're required to go all the way. In other words, Jesus says, no more percentages. I want it all. And, and just a word about money, because we compare the old and new covenants, and we see that he requires so much more of us now than he did under the old covenant in every area of our lives. Why do we treat money any different? Because we don't like giving away our money, right? We like our stuff. We work hard for our money. I like stuff too. And I'm not telling you that you have to go out and empty your checking account tomorrow and put it all in the offering bag or give it to a missionary. What I am saying is that the same principles that apply to every other part of our lives in this context of Old and New Covenants also apply to our money. Under the Old Covenant, He required 10% of our income to be given back to Him. So what does Jesus say about that under the New Covenant? I'm glad you asked. In Luke chapter 11, verse 42, Jesus is chastising the Pharisees for their lack of understanding and commitment to God. And He says, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He's saying to them, look, you pay your 10%. Great. You should. But can't you see there is so much more that the Father wants from you? You're so focused on percentages, but God wants all of you. You see the difference. We get so hung up on 10%. It's so much bigger than that. He wants everything. He wants all of your heart. He wants all of your mind. He wants all of your checkbook. He wants control of it all. He wants you to give him everything. That's the difference between the old and new covenant. And the church at Antioch seems to have figured that out, no doubt, through the guidance and teaching and training that they've received from those who came before them. Okay? So the bottom line is, as individuals and as the church, there needs to be balance. We have to realize that not everything in this life or in our ministry will be perfect. There will be misunderstandings, but through a healthy balance of receiving and giving, we can grow in our personal lives and in our ministry to heights that we never imagined. God wants to pour out his blessings on us and on this church, he does. But we have to be willing to work through our differences when they arise. We have to be willing to humbly receive uh, instruction and correction and guidance. And then we have to be willing to give lavishly back into the relationships and the ministry that we're a part of. That is a model for lasting success in the ministry of the gospel. And it is a recipe for growing a healthy family. All right? Let's pray.